Today's episode is sponsored by the Election Ride Home podcast. Someone's going to be challenging Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home podcast is dedicated to figuring out who that someone or maybe even multiple someones will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail, who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, and what the polls say. It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the strategies being developed to mitigate and adapt to climate chaos while centering social justice in our planning. And stick around at the end of the show for a discussion about the debate within the Democratic Party, the power of having a good story to tell, and taking the long view of the progressive takeover already in motion. Plus, here are the possible upcoming topics that will be voted on this weekend by listeners just like you. To be honest, I came up with so many good ones this week, I had to include more options than usual in the poll. So check that out on Patreon, patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. You don't have to be a member in order to vote. So check that out. And now, onto the show. Clips today come from Infinite Earth Radio, The Brian Lehrer Show, The Real News, America Adapts, and The Next System Project. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about how cities have transformed historically and, and what this next transformation of cities is, according to your book. Well, Mike, we all know that the cities that we live in today are not the same kinds of cities as the cities that were established 6,000 years ago for the first time in the Middle East, or the cities that existed in medieval times, or even in the time before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, These were all cities, but clearly cities evolve and change. And, And it's not just that they get bigger or more complicated, they change in fundamental ways. And so we got very interested in whether or not the way cities are dealing with climate change today starts to evolve cities in yet a new way. Is this part of a uh, change in urban life that is not just, oh, we're driving electric cars today instead of gas cars, but something more fundamental than that? And so what we did for research was we went back and asked the question, How do the cities that we currently live in, how did that happen? When was the last great transformation of cities? And the answer seems to be it started around 1800 uh, with the Industrial Revolution. So there are two things that happened since around 1800 that historically suggest the kind of transformation that we're now talking about in the 21st century. First of all, cities became a fixture of global life. Before 1800, uh, the demographers tell us uh, maybe 30 million people worldwide lived in cities, about 3% of the population. Well, today it's more like 3 billion people and it's 50% of the population. So clearly the city form of living has spread across the globe in the last couple of hundred years. And then secondly, all of the cities that we, we have today are what we call modern cities. They have modern systems, they have modern technologies, they have modern ideas. And that was not true 
before 1800. There was a change in the nature of cities and a change in the dominance of cities as the human habitat that's occurred in the last 200 years. So we went to look at that. One of the fun pieces of research that we did was uh, we studied London, London before the Industrial Revolution. That's where the Industrial Revolution started. But if you look at London in the early 1700s, 40 or 50 years after much of the medieval city burned down, you find a city. It's a bustling, energetic city with lots of people and lots of infrastructure, but it doesn't look anything like the modern city that we know today. The systems are not there. Uh, There's no real serious water systems. The buildings fall down all the time. There's very few buildings more than three, four, five stories high. The transportation system is driven either on uh, animal power or human power. And if you went back to that time, you'd say, well, it's a city, but it doesn't look really like a modern city. It doesn't feel like a modern city. What typically gets explained as the driver of change in cities, this evolution that I'm talking about, is technology. Oh, the steam engine came along and that made trains possible and boats possible in a new way. And then it made factories possible. And then electricity came along and that made uh, light bulbs everywhere possible. And then automobiles came along and that transformed cities. And it's true that those kinds of technologies, and especially the technologies of the Industrial Revolution, have had that kind of effect on cities. But what we focused on was the ideas that were present in cities about what a city ought to be and how life ought to be in cities. And we found that the modern city was built on a set of ideas, not just technologies, that expressed the way people wanted things to be or thought things were. And that these ideas were fundamental to both the design of city space, the design of city life, how we use the space, and really important as well in the spreading of cities. So what we looked at was, are the ideas that are embedded in climate change innovations that cities are pursuing, are those ideas different from the ideas that helped build the modern city? And we found the answer was, yes, they're radically different. And when they are applied in the 21st century, they create a new kind of city. They push a new evolution forward in city life and in city space. That's how we came to the conclusion that there was a book here to write. Okay, fantastic. So, And you looked at, in your book, you looked at 25 cities that you call climate innovation lab cities. Can you... Kind of speak to that. Why is that a formal designation or was that just that you guys defined it as that? And, and why do you, why did you use that title? Well, it's not a formal designation, although maybe it should be. We, we invented that title for a couple of reasons. We started working with what we'd call leading edge cities, cities that were deeply committed and acting on climate change, maybe five or six years ago. And we're talking about cities around the world, uh, not just North American cities. So these are cities where the leadership of the cities, and it's the elected leadership, but it's also the civic leadership. It's the business leadership. It's community activists. It's the professions. The leadership of the cities have said any of a number of things. Uh, A, we have a moral responsibility to deal with climate change. Cities produce most of the greenhouse gas emissions emitted in the world. We have to do something about that. We can't just leave this to someone else. This is our problem, not just someone else's problem. So some people thought that there was a moral obligation to act. Others thought that there was a practical obligation to act. We need to defend our city against the 
possible ravages of climate change. When a cloudburst descends on Copenhagen in, I think, 2011, and literally drowns parts of the city, the city leaders don't say, oh, well, that probably isn't going to happen again. They say, never again. We have to act and act now. Our systems can't handle that. So an innovation lab city, as, as we've defined it, is a place where the city's leadership has decided that decarbonizing as rapidly and as much as possible and building the city's resilience to climate changes is an imperative, is a paramount priority, not just another thing that ought to get done at some point. So a city like that has a couple of ways it could go. Uh, many cities have made commitments, pledges, but don't follow up strongly. Many other cities do a little of this and a little of that. That's fine. But an innovation city of the kind we're talking about, San Francisco, New York, Copenhagen, Singapore, uh, Stockholm, Melbourne, Sydney, a city like that makes not just a commitment, but a commitment to radical innovation as rapidly as possible for years, for decades, to deal with these issues. So it has multiple generations of leaders that push on this kind of priority. It experiments all the time in multiple systems, in the waste system, and the water system, and the energy system, and their buildings. They're constantly doing new things, trying out new things, and they're usually doing it with a deep reliance on data, management performance, and working at the system level. They're not just trying to change the way one building does something. They're trying to change the way all buildings do something. So when we looked at these cities, we thought, well, these cities have turned themselves into climate innovation laboratories. And we don't mean that there's a building someplace which is doing experiments or that they're running hackathons every night. What we mean is that the ethic of acting on climate has permeated the city's being, is part of the culture of the city, is part of the way we do things here, and is not going away anytime soon. It's not a fad. It's not a one-off. It's a deep commitment to reinventing the city for the climate era. There aren't a lot of cities that are at this stage, but there's probably 40 or 50 around the world. And, and we had the good fortune of having uh, worked with, worked in, and having good relationships with about 25 of them, which we then um, really tapped to tell the stories, provide the examples, and to build the framework for our book. wrote about the, the project in New York, uh, the Lower Manhattan Coastal Resiliency Plan. You also wrote about a project in Santa Cruz and a project in Bangladesh. Uh, let, let's talk as we wait for these calls to come in. Uh, each of these projects very different from from the other. Uh, but let's talk about the one downtown, the Lower Manhattan Coastal Resiliency Plan. Originally, it was the berm. Uh, you know, we started talking seriously about it here after Sandy. Uh, how do we manage rising sea level uh, after we were flooded so badly? Now the plan includes adding two city blocks and raising them up. We're going to raise the coastline along the Lower East Side all the way over to Battery Park to keep the area from flooding next time. Jeff, it's big, 
it's expensive, it's city-driven. Is that the way big cities are adapting to climate change uh, from from the urban center out? And then maybe we ask the state and the federal government for some money. Is that the approach? Well, it, 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 first of all, yes. And and you you characterized what New York is considering doing and is planning to do quite well. Um, I think it's important to note that it's not just New York City taxpayers who are going to be paying for this. It's uh, American taxpayers who are going to be paying for this because a good portion of what you described is uh, is going to be paid for uh, by Uncle Sam, which is to say by by people well beyond New York. Um, that is not unusual in the United States, and it's not unusual in the world. Just as New York is thinking about everything from erecting walls along um, Lower Manhattan to building effectively building additional land out from Lower Manhattan uh, and building it higher, um, that those are those are practices that New York has borrowed from other places in the world. I mean, one place that often is discussed in this context is the Netherlands. The Netherlands, obviously a low-lying place that's had to deal with how you um, have people coexist with water for a long, long time. But the point is that coastal cities around the world are having to reckon with this. And if you believe the numbers that um, institutions like the United Nations put out, the bill for this sort of thing is going to be truly massive, and promises have been made around the world to spend money on this, particularly in coastal cities in the developing world, which are not as wealthy as New York. And the reality is that the promises are not being kept. That is to say that the rich nations of the world are not paying what they said that they would pay to help the poor nations of the world deal with this problem. So as New York goes the world is going, and it's very, very unclear to what extent this is going to um, get rectified. Um, and I and I think it's probably fair to say that you know the jury is still out on the absolute specifics of the New York plan as well. Um, I mean, not all of the money that New York has said uh, it plans to spend on this. Um, has been fully allocated on a federal level as well. And, uh, and so, you know, there are absolutely going to be political fights moving forward. This is, this is a, a devilishly detailed and difficult problem, um, even if you outline your broad plan. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
I've been speaking with Dustin Mulvaney about his new book on the complexities of solar power, a form of energy that's rightfully been billed as green, but poses some questions about environmental justice and equity. In part one, we talked a lot about the mining processes that you need to obtain the compounds you need to create solar energy, but you also obviously need land. You need somewhere to put those panels. And that, of course, comes with a whole other set of issues. So once again, uh, Dustin Mulvaney is an associate professor in the Environmental Studies Department at San Jose University, and his new book is Solar Power, Innovation, Sustainability, and Environmental Justice. Thanks so much for being here again. You're welcome. So a major debate over solar in the U.S. has been uh, the fight over utility sales or scale solar, particularly on uh, public lands in the Southwest. After the 2008 recession, uh, huge swaths of public land were used to construct solar farms, I think something like 10% of all public lands. And your book points out that environmental justice advocates and indigenous groups actually demanded that other lands were considered instead uh, abandoned farmland, industrial brownfields. Um, but, you know, it, instead, of course, there was this huge uh, seizing of public lands. Talk about how that happened. You actually say that it turned into uh, what you call a green civil war between some of the bigger green organizations and some smaller climate justice groups. Yeah, the, the origin for this conflict really goes back to 2001 with the, the Bush-Cheney Energy Task Force. And one of the major recommendations to come from that task force was to expedite energy development on public lands. And of course, they probably were not talking about solar, wind, and geothermal. They were mainly talking about oil, coal, and natural gas. Yet, that policy was applied to the solar industry when public lands came under pressure uh, for development as you said, around 2008 through 2012 or so was really the, the big push for, for a lot of this. And the origins for that are, are a bit complicated. But one of the reasons I believe that public lands were targeted in this initial uh, wave of, of solar development was that these are just big parcels of land. The, the, the Bureau of Land Management is the nation's largest landlord with over 250 million acres of land that they manage. And you know, to some extent, the, the, the renewables industry had always been jealous of the, the fossil fuel industries because they get access to public lands and they became their lobbyists basically said, well, you should give us public lands, too. Um, so there, the BLM uh, in the 2005 Energy Policy Act was mandated, and I would put that in air quotes, mandated, because it actually doesn't say that in, in, the, in the legislation but it was interpreted as a mandate that they would develop 10 gigawatts of solar on public lands. And that was expanded actually to 20 gigawatts under the Obama administration. So the BLM, it became part of their mission to actually dispossess their lands and, and virtually privatize them for industry, essentially. I call it a virtual privatization because it wasn't that the, the solar companies were buying the land. It's that they just got to occupy it, fence it in bulldoze it and, and basically treat it as their own, but eventually it was supposed to be returned to, to the federal government. Now, the other reason for public lands um, is, and then this is a similar argument, but the large parcel sizes mean that they only have to deal with one landowner. So if you want to build a really large solar farm, let's say eight square miles, and there are some that are that big. If you want to build an eight square mile solar farm, you know, imagine trying to do that in a rural community where you got to deal with, you know, 15 to 30 different landowners and you got to negotiate prices and such. Uh, the BLM became a lot easier to deal with. So a lot of the solar companies would rather have dealt directly with BLM. And that 
was the major impetus. The other reason that the, BL- the BLM lands were targeted because was because they were able to be fast-tracked, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And the reason fast-tracking became important here is because there was stimulus money available to these solar companies um, in the form of loan guarantees and cash grants, which sometimes could be used to pay off the loans. And if those projects didn't break ground before a certain date, that money would be basically taken back by the next Congress. So that fast tracking really was driven by the need to get shovels in the ground. And if you remember from that conversation around the financial crisis 2008, shovel-ready projects were was the, the catchphrase that we were looking to invest in, we mean the United States during the economic downturn. And fast-tracked solar projects on public lands were considered shovel-ready. And it's not clear that they could have even built them as quick on private land. But I've, we've seen a lot less projects built on public lands more recently. Uh, yeah, I think actually, so another another really interesting thing about the, the specific land grab in the Southwest uh, that my colleague Steve Horn, who produced this segment, and I both, uh, you know, thought was a really important part of the book is that deserts are being targeted for massive solar installations too. And and as you explain in the book, uh, deserts are carbon sinks. They help the earth fight global warming. Talk a little bit about that contradiction. Um, you say that it only came up in one uh, environmental impact statement and then it was kind of pushed to the side. The fact that, you know, if you, if you just left this land alone, it might have been doing uh, as much for for uh, you know preventing climate change. Right there, there's a tendency in this solar energy space to really focus on making solar as cheap as possible, and that kind of runs counter to a lot of the things that we've talked about. I mean, I would argue that it's our quest for cheapness in society in general that has gotten us into this mess in the first place. Certainly, uh, but if you were to look at a solar farm that's cheap in the desert and compare it to a more expensive one, maybe that's near some marginal farmland closer to an urban area. From a carbon perspective, the reverse is actually true. So so that solar project in the desert might look cheaper than the one close to the urban area that's on farmland. But from a carbon perspective, the one that is in the desert is actually going to displace more carbon because you got above ground carbon in plants, you got below ground carbon in the roots of plants and, and desert plants have huge roots because they're going deep and looking for water. You could see, you know, if you ever see one of these exposed, you could see that the root mass is actually a lot bigger often than the biomass above ground. There are also inorganic carbonates. And in fact, deserts act as, uh, they act to sequester carbon. There's evidence of this. Um, the rates are debated often about what rate these sequester carbon. But when you disturb landscapes on in desert soils, you actually can release some of those carbonates. So these are inorganic. These are fixed carbon. This is already fixed carbon that you're releasing to the atmosphere. So I would argue that if we wanted to be citing more responsibly from a carbon perspective, we really shouldn't be going for where projects are cheapest. It, they should be placed where we save the most carbon emissions. And by Causing land use change, whether it's in deserts, we've seen it now in far, boreal forests, even with really, really carbon rich ecosystems. It just delays the time to when that actually starts saving us carbon emissions. So we should be putting solar where we can actually have win-win scenarios. I mean, I'm a big advocate for bringing solar closer to load, even if it's not going to generate the same amount of power, because if we're worried about our cities overheating in the context of climate change, 
boy, we better be creating a lot more shade in our urban areas. And maybe we can reduce some heat island effects, right? So if we want to be thinking more holistically about solar energy solutions, we should be putting this in places that reduce temperature, that can um, reduce land use change, that can save as much carbon. And in fact, on this point about heat island effect, so the heat island effect is this idea that cities absorb all this heat and all their concrete and pavement and things um, during the daytime and then re-release this overnight in the form of long wave radiation. And that means the next day that there, these cities are a lot warmer than they were the, the day previously because that that heat is still held in a lot of those parking lots right. if you ever walk into a, a parking lot at night. And there's been some studies that show if you put a solar farm in a rural area, it actually increases the heat island effect. And there's other studies that show if you put a solar farm in an urban area, particularly if you're covering pavement, you could actually reduce heat island effect. So I'm really seeking solutions here that are about how to optimize and, and maximize carbon savings and maximize benefits to communities, to cities as they try to become more climate smart. over the executive summary of the report, I noticed that they uh, define a term, climate safe infrastructure. And then I assume that, that, you know, the findings relate to the how to achieve that. Can you tell us what that means? What is climate safe infrastructure? Climate safe infrastructure in, in the context of the working group is infrastructure that not only can function and considered sustainable in the context of evolving climate impacts, but at the same time provide the access as well as the equity and ability for specifically vulnerable populations to benefit from the purpose of that infrastructure. And the word climate there does not just necessarily mean, or climate safe, I should say, does not necessarily mean just working through and implying that it would stand, would stand extreme weather events. But we also are looking at how, as I mentioned earlier, engineers and architects and practitioners in this field would be able to design, construct, build, maintain, operate this infrastructure, again, to maintain the benefits that they were built for. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. So let's dive into maybe the some of the key findings or recommendations that really jumped out to you from this process as an engineer, as a practitioner. What do you think is the biggest takeaways that we should be thinking about as we think about our infrastructure in the future? There are three buckets of topics, if you may, that I think folks should be aware of from the recommendations. The first one is in the context of policy, climate safe infrastructure is something that we need not only be aware of, but should be part and parcel of the values of the state of California. And that's something that we have advocated for not only internally during the discussion of, of the work of the working group, but also as a recommendation to the state legislature as well as the Strategic Growth Council to consider a policy like that. The second one is in terms of the budget. Obviously, a lot of this ideas would not necessarily become real if not for available funding, either for continued climate science research 
the incorporation of climate science research into the practice of civil engineering as well as architectural engineering and some other related disciplines. But at the same time, building these kinds of infrastructures, not only to protect uh, the general public from, again, the impact of climate change, but at the same time, ensure the long-term benefits of those infrastructures. And the third one there is really in terms of codes and standards. How do engineers now plan, design, build, maintain, operate these things without a code that they can refer to or something that they can uniformly implement across the board. And that's something that we've thought long and hard about in terms of even having a starting point on on what that is. We have looked at different sources of information across the country and even invited a number of uh, different people who have expertise, not only in different rating systems that are out there, but some semblance of a uniform way of building in climate data into the design. But the best that we can come up with at this point in time is the work of the American side of civil engineers, specifically the manual practice that was developed out of the organization that somehow will guide absent a standard on how to design in climate data into infrastructure. So that's interesting. So I hear policy, you know, statewide legislative policy, funding, and some of the real nuts and bolts of the standards. Who owns those next steps? Clearly on the policy side, we're talking about legislators and and probably on the funding side, but maybe there's some others. And then is it the engineering community that owns the development of the standards, or is that a collaborative effort with other folks such as scientists and community activists and organizers and policymakers? That's an interesting question, Kif, because on one hand, let's go back to the policy, right? I mean, the legislation, legislators, for example, or, or the governor's office can initiate a process to develop policy along the lines of what I already mentioned, but without advocacy from the general public, from, for example, faith-based organizations or uh, groups that are most impacted by the development of these policies, the wording and and the intent, as well as the implementation of those policies, may not even be reflective of the true need of the communities that those are being addressed to. And so on that very first point, and I think it's also true for the last two buckets of things that I mentioned earlier, it has to be a two-way street, right? It has to be a dialogue between the communities, jurisdictions, the people who are most impacted by these recommendations, as well as those who are in control and those who are able to to actually affect the writing of the policy, the development of, of standards, as well as the inclusion and development of funding mechanisms for these projects. Is there something in the report, in the working group, in your work that you're seeing that's really maybe keeps you up at night as, as one of the major challenges that we're facing in this space and or something that you just couldn't get to in the working group that potentially you think we really, you want to let the community know at large we should be paying more attention to? The most common response Kif, to that question is funding and the ability of folks to actually realize not only the intent of current and any future policies, as well as ensuring 
and which is something that people don't normally think about, ensuring that over the long term, the benefits of those infrastructures as well as those solutions, maintenance of, of the benefits of those solutions and infrastructural benefits over the long term. But I look at it as while there are perceived and maybe even real gaps in terms of resources in general, and maybe there's also a relationship gap in there. I'll tackle that, those two here in, in a few seconds. But the point I'm trying to make is that regardless of, of what those gaps are, I think people just need to reflect, uh, including myself, uh, we need to reflect with everyone that the lack of resources or the presence of gaps should not hinder us from thinking about how we can move forward with the idea of ensuring our survival in the future in the context of the evolving and become in the severe impacts of changing climate. And where I'm coming from with that one is more often than not, I sit in many of these conversations you know, around the country and people put in a lot of good thought, a lot of good planning, a lot of a significant amount of effort, I should say. And at the end of the day, people look around the table and uh, they say, so how are we going to do this? And then six months later, you look back at that moment in time and nothing has happened. I think it's time to be selfless. I think the call to action here is, is not necessarily who am I in the conversation, but the call to action is how can I ensure that us as a human entity, as a human species, actually survive in this crisis that we're facing here. And if we think of it that way, then many of the gaps, many of the shortcomings, many of the issues that's preventing us from moving forward with our ideas will slowly, not suddenly, slowly go away. So on the funding side specifically, I was at the uh, Global Action Climate Summit a week or two ago. I guess you were there as well. And maybe you've heard this. There's a lot of money that's sitting on the sidelines. And investors have their own goals for profit as well as return on investment. And there are a lot of significant needs for infrastructure to actually uh, benefit from, from these investments that these investors may be willing to do. But is there a compelling reason for these investors to pour in their money? Yes. Is that something that the impacted communities necessarily have uh, made a case for? Maybe. Are both of those parties really understanding that this can be a win-win situation? Not necessarily. So maybe there is that opportunity for not only people to go around the table and talk about these kinds of things, but more so collectively, hand in hand, do something together and understand the goals that, that each one have and make sure that it's a win-win for, for everyone. In terms of equity, in terms of ensuring that folks who are mostly impacted are, are part of the conversation, I already mentioned this earlier. A lot of these solutions that people come up with are thought about and talked about you know, in a room or on the table. But is there a conscious outreach to these communities? Uh, I was in a meeting, for example, today, 
with uh, formerly incarcerated electricians. And they were just telling me about the challenge of, for example, hiring or a, a policy to hire formerly incarcerated community groups, but a color of money or funding restriction on hiring those same groups. That needs to be reconciled. Those inconsistencies need to be understood and be reconciled. It's nice for a lot of these proclamations, a lot of the strategies to be said in public forums. I think part of the challenge there is that some of these announcements, proclamations, as well as policies, the devil is in the details, as they, as they say. And it's a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. And I think by, by me just bringing these things up, people who are more smart than I am, I will be able to take on the challenge and really lo- roll up their sleeves and, and work on how to reduce and actually eliminate uh, these types, types of challenge. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. How does adaptation avoid the missteps of sustainability or the sustainability movement, if you, if you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I actually think it's a really good question because, you know, there actually is a lot to learn from in as we institutionalize adaptation, codify it, proceduralize it, begin to kind of standardize what we how we think about it for better or for worse. And there's actually a lot to be learned about the um, steps and missteps of sustainability in that regard. I don't think we're too far off in terms of the subjectivity and the goals that we seek. I think the real challenge for us, the major challenge in many ways is not having maladaptation be part of that conversation. So if we just perpetuate adaptation as a kind of post-rationalization of whatever we do being good, and it's, of course, going to be a good outcome because it's adaptation without understanding maladaptation, or at least analyzing it, providing it as a set of part of our, our discourse and our conversations and our analysis, then we're going to just, we're going to run the kind of greenwashing problem, right? It's going to be, it's going to become meaningless. So we have to provide meaning, and part of that meaning is conflict, part of that meaning is synergy, and part of that meaning is transparency in what we're trying to get at. And I think sustainability had that challenge uh, for a long time. I think it's something we have to come to terms with. 
Okay, so are climate change research organizations shifting to include adaptation in their funding models? And if they are, if they want to, how should they potentially be framing the to get access to research funding? And I guess this is a question about, is there enough adaptation research going on? Yeah, it's interesting. I think in certain sectors and uh, coastal sector, in, in uh, certain civil engineering, environmental engineering realm, uh, in agriculture, there's uh, some very strong, robust levels of funding uh, to promote research. I think in other areas, it's quite weak. Actually, another strong, a very strong area right now is public health as well. But, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, I think one proposition that I would raise for people who may find themselves on the fringe, maybe in social sciences, for instance, is think about how they can become part of a team. Problems tend to be sort of unidimensional in their orientation. And so therefore, oh, yeah, that's a civil engineering problem or that's a, you know, a public health problem. But in fact, it requires a lot of different perspectives. And, you know, one of the things I've found very valuable in the work that we do is we participate in a lot of different groups in thinking about, okay, well, what is the social science or finance or the policy? What do we know about design that can contribute to a problem that's not necessarily in our domain of knowledge, but we become allied to and we can actually facilitate. And that multi and transdisciplinarity, I think, is necessary for solving problems or at least giving some options to solve problems. So I think it requires a little bit of an expanding expansion of your of your capacity to engage a broader set of problems. And and for a lot of people, that may be very uncomfortable because it's outside of your domain of competency and others in the academy may judge you as stepping outside of your bounds. But you know, if you just followed the academy, you wouldn't even get into climate adaptation anyway. So once you're in this world, you have to come to terms with it. You're running the risk of the academy just isolating you anyway. I feel like this concept is not completely dead, but pretty much dying is the notion that if you start focusing on adaptation, you've given up on mitigation in your own kind of encounters with people. What are your thoughts on this notion that remember back in the day that that adaptation used to be disparaged for feeling like you're giving up? Well, that was formally dismissed in Paris as a formal resolution of the the uh, logical trade-off that was framed there. I think many, many people uh, today, in uh, particularly in the public sector, still really push the idea of co-benefits or synergies between adaptation and mitigation. I fully support that ambition, but I would also support the idea that that it's more complicated than we think because it's really about netting out the implications of the conflict. So there's all kinds of adaptation that is going to really put a dent or conversely create a greater carbon footprint, frankly. The question is over what time horizon and how long does that last and are there residual benefits that may actually reduce externally the carbon footprint? You know, a good example of that is urban density, right? So urban density is is going to increase our carbon footprint uh, in terms of a lot of different types of uh, energy use and like, but it could in the long run reduce our carbon footprint in terms of a, a patternization if it offers greater access to mass transit, for instance. So it's it's difficult to think about a full life cycle of how these relate to each other. And frankly, the empirical evidence is not positive. The empirical evidence suggests that most adaptation is in direct conflict with mitigation. There's been a lot of research around the world about this and that there's very few what people call win-win strategies. So 
I think if we move away from the idea that it's a win-win and we begin to just kind of net it out and think about a true life cycle assessment, um, then we can make a better informed judgment about what we're trying, what are the goals that we're trying to solve. But at the same time, I, I fully support the, the ambition. I just think that it's, it's limited uh, at the end of the day. I want to get into this concept of community-centered development, but before I do that, uh, I want to bring Basaf uh, into the conversation. And I'm wondering, um, from a, a national perspective, how much, uh, how does this fit into what you see around the country? Um, it fits very well with a pattern of what I would call sacrifice zones where certain communities, overwhelmingly communities of color, poor communities, are made to pay the price for our um, industrial system and our entire economy, whether it's communities next to polluting power plants or communities in extraction zones. Um, and extraction zones are in a double bind because not only are they dealing with the pollution impacts, but they become dependent on extractive industries for employment opportunities and their economy remains undiversified, uh, which is a lot of what you're seeing in Appalachia, for example, and which is why there's often pushback. Uh, to the notion of trying to cut back on extraction and move away from fossil fuels. And uh, honestly, you can't blame people who've repeatedly been um, marginalized and not allowed to develop their local economy in a way that benefits them as against distant elites. Um, and you see that replicated in um, local communities as well with gentrification and with uh, uh, how communities who have been neglected for a long time um, and polluted and under-resourced and lacking in um, employment opportunities, uh, transportation facilities, etc. cetera. Uh, suddenly, you know, those communities when uh, they catch the attention of real estate developers. They get investment. They get, um, you know, new transportation facilities and employment opportunities, etc. Except they are never intended for the benefit of the people already living there, who are um, uh, disproportionately people of color and poor people. Uh, it's like all this new investment is for an influx of new people who are wealthier. Uh, and, you know, that's the process of gentrification that is playing out in cities across the country. Uh, so very much what we heard about struggles in Harlem is relevant to what you see everywhere. Johanna, one of the things that struck me uh, reading uh, your report, Building Resiliency Through Green Infrastructure, which, uh, by the way, listeners, if you're interested in that report, that's at democracycollaborative.org slash green infrastructure. One of the things that struck me was that even as 
grassroots enterprises are working with green infrastructure and they're hiring people in the community to do green infrastructure, infrastructure work, there is this fear that the work that they are doing to improve their communities will eventually be work that they will not be able to benefit from. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really good point and something that was articulated by many of the people I spoke to who are on the ground working on kind of climate resiliency strategies. And, um, you know, one of the things that I was really excited about having this conversation um, today with Michael and Basav was uh, particularly this vision of East Harlem and this concept of community-centered development and really shifting, like thinking about this from a very complex systems approach, um, you know, thinking about taking the opportunity of this transit hub to really think about what development or community design looks like um, in, in a specific locality um, and how you actually ensure that, you know, it's about recentering development. And, and Michael, I'd be really interested to hear kind of how, how you see this and how you um, define community-centered development. But for me, it means like reshifting um, our perspective on development so that it's not about bringing people in per se, um, you know, richer people um, to d develop the area, but it's actually about um, providing the spaces, uh, you know, pro providing new spaces for folks who actually already live there and opportunities, uh, for instance, through green infrastructure. And, you know, we are talking a lot about how we create um, a city that is resilient to climate change and um, climate vulnerability is um, deeply tied to political and economic disenfranchisement. And so how do we actually get at those things through our design of these new communities? And I think that is why in the report, uh, I put a big focus on the relationship between implementing green infrastructure um, and affordable housing, because a major problem for these grassroots uh, or community wealth building enterprises was that they don't want to implement green infrastructure um, and create a more resilient space and then have that as a catalyst for additional gentrification. And so how we actually need to think in the systems approach, um, like uh, folks that we act for uh, environmental justice are doing um, to kind of think, OK, if we're going to implement um, climate resilient strategies and we're going to employ local folks, we also have to ensure that people can continue to live there by integrating that with like long term affordable housing plans. Um, that are for the folks who have been there for a while. What do you need to do to make sure that public voice is at the forefront of that kind of transition? So I think that this is um, something when it comes to the Green New Deal, because it's being talked about at this federal level, um, if we get something like this passed, um, hopefully that will mean a uh, potential huge influx in, you know, redesigning our cities and our communities and, and you know, rural areas so that they uh, reflect the resiliency we're looking for. Um, and I think... The, it's going to be a challenge um, in terms of ensuring that that doesn't get co-opted by, you know, um, specific developers or specific companies. Uh, for instance, I mean, I think that what the the example that Basav gives around Lyft uh, taking over what should be a public good 
um, for private gain it is something that we're going to have to be really, really clear about when it comes to uh, things like the Green New Deal to ensure that that doesn't happen as we're redesigning cities. And um, I think what we need to do is look to examples like what uh, we act for environmental justice um, and Michael have done in terms of what what's working in terms of engaging folks. Uh, you know, how do we create grassroots based action plans for climate that actually are taken seriously uh, by uh, the powers that be? And how do we just actually flip that concept of power so that it is uh, the grassroots planning um, and like it's communities planning their communities instead of developers coming in, taking that money and, um, and redesigning it for, for themselves. Even if it, so there's with the potential to turn certain areas of our, um, of our cities into ecological enclaves instead of actually distributing that benefit. Um, and I think this is, is another place where I see intersection in terms of who who is actually delivering the service uh, in terms of who's actually doing the work. Um, if we have community-based enterprise or community wealth-building enterprises that are actually helping to build this too, um, I would also hope that that would provide additional agency because wor- workers who live in their communities often know what's going to work better for that community. Um, and so I think that even when it comes to it, there's the development phase, but there's also the phase of implementation and how we do that in a just and equitable way. But um, Michael, I'd also be really interested to hear some of the outcomes and lessons learned from this uh, community-centered development process that, that you think we could apply in other communities as well, um, you know, in the future. Yeah, definitely many lesson, lessons learned um, throughout um, the nearly two years that we've been engaged in this process. Um, I, think, oh, I think that's one of the key pieces of it is you have to take your time, right? You have to, um, to be able to engage in meaningful con- consultation um, with community members and other stakeholders and the reason I say other stakeholders is because we also wanted to create space for not just residents or tenants um, who were at the center of this project, but also other stakeholders who are impacted by um, these development projects um, now and, and moving forward. So the transit u- users, we, we conducted a survey to try to understand their needs and, and desires. Um, we talked to small business owners um, of uh, we built a coalition of over 40 um, local community organizations working on a range of issues from um, homelessness and, and, and drug dependency issues. Um, we, we had an amazing partner in Picture the Homeless um, to um, other social service and business, small business developers like uh, Union Settlement here in East Harlem. And so it, it was really critical to also build that coalition out, um, especially early on to be able to, to overcome some of the political challenges that um, exist in, um, in East Harlem and I think in, in other similarly situated communities. And part of, part of what I mean by that is, as I mentioned earlier, um, development, redevelopment, revitalization, um, anti-blight measures, there's a whole history of uh, city and private-led um, uh sort of approaches to development that, that I actually think mirror um, redevelopment or development um, efforts in the global south, 
mean, it's this mm-hmm. notion that um, there are unproductive spaces um, that, uh, for different reasons, um, sh- should be transformed into uh, spaces that make money. And um, and I think uh, that's left, obviously, um, a lot of uh, bad blood in the water for local communities who have had to to live through different iterations of development and, and revitalization. Um, and they've not ever seen any benefits to it. I mean, I think the, the big piece there is that um, it's, it's, as you were saying, it's about power and decision-making ability. And for the environmental justice movement, um, one of the core principles, um, particularly for, for we act um, is to be able to, um, create the conditions in which um, local people can can make decisions for themselves and can shape um, particularly the policy decisions that impact their um, their health and well-being on a day-to-day basis. Um, so one of the lessons um, moving from that piece is that there's going to be conversations in which, um, you know, folks will be um, – on different sides of a particular issue. Um, one, one of the, one of the big issues along 125th street is homelessness. Um, and that's partly by design. That's, um, the city has, um, you know, the city and state have concentrated a number of, uh, shelters and other, um, social service providers in the area. Um, and, uh, so you have a, a larger, um, uh, population of homeless people there. And so one of the things that, that we knew from the beginning was to have actual homeless voices in the room to be able to, to articulate their perspective and their needs um, and the solutions that they see um, on the front lines every day. Um, and so that, that didn't sit well with some, uh, some of the other folks who, who perhaps from the small business pr- community or, or um, you know, folks who, who I think want to redevelop the area for, for housing purposes or other retail purposes, that's a hot button issue. And so one of the things that we had to do from early on is say, listen, there in this space, there's, we respect everybody's rights um, to be present and to have a voice in this process. And so um, we're not going to demonize homeless people. Right. And so we had um, leadership from picture the homeless, um, as I mentioned, their members, turn out um, and participate actually in some of these design sessions um, from day one. And mm-hmm. so that really, um, when you have to center that, you, you can you can say, you know, one of the things is we may not always agree on all of the solutions, but we can begin to create points of unity so that we can structure the conversation in an equitable and just way. We've just heard clips today, starting with Infinite Earth Radio, looking at the evolution of cities. The Brian Lehrer Show took a look at a few strategies cities around the world are employing to prepare for sea level rise. The Real News explained the land politics of erecting solar power arrays. 
Infinite Earth Radio discussed building climate-safe infrastructure with the input of the most impacted communities. America Adapts discussed how climate adaptation is learning from some of the mistakes of the sustainability movement. And finally, we just heard the Next System Project discussing the concept of community-centered development in contrast to the sacrifice zones we've become so accustomed to. And I want to mention that uh, all of the music for today's episode came from a composer who's a listener of the show. His name's Nathaniel Christie. You can find him on YouTube. And he wrote in just to let me know that I could use these songs on the show if I wanted. And uh, a while back, I switched to using songs without lyrics, primarily because it saves me hours of production time each month. You wouldn't believe the time I used to spend searching for just the right song with just the right lyrics to fit the topic or the clip that had just been played. So I, I stopped doing all that to save myself a lot of time and heartache. So anyway, I've gotten other offers from musicians to use their music before, but since most have lyrics, it's harder to find a place for it on the show. But if you have music that's heavy on the music and light on the lyrics, and you think it's a good fit for the show and you'd like to let me use it royalty-free, please be in touch. And lastly, I want to mention that members this week will hear from a landscape architect on today's topic describing the process of preparing low-lying countries for sea level rise, as well as continued voicemails from members and the discussions they spur. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I am catching up on the last few months of content, which you have uploaded to your wonderful website. And uh, I would like to say a brief word on episode 1299, which I must first say, by far, I believe is the best episode contextually that you have produced to date for this year. It is an incredible episode that really should be distributed to as many uh, Democratic voters as possible. I unfortunately don't have a lot of time to go into depth as to what I think about uh, the topic discussed, but I would like to ask your listeners, in considering what was covered in that episode, to please familiarize themselves with Noam Chomsky's many lectures on the two-party system. He has been saying since essentially the 1970s, possibly the 1960s, that there is one corporate party. The Democrats and Republicans are both part of a corporate party, and we, the people, the ordinary people do not have a representative per se. We are periodically thrown scraps and crumbs by either party to give us the illusion that they are representing our interests, but they are not. Now, recently, I have been looking over old footage and information dealing with the Occupy Wall Street movement for a project I have coming up. And 
I was shocked at how hostile the Democratic Party was to that movement, which was a very big movement led by the youth. And when I look at the squad, I am reminded of that youthful energy, which I feel, or should I say I fear, not feel, but fear, the Democratic establishment is quite frightened of because I don't know exactly where you live or where you travel to most, but where I live, things are relatively stable, but economically, there's quite a recession going on. And I know throughout the country, there is obviously a recession, but from what I gather around the country, there is a deep sense of this recession now. And in the 30s, when we were going through a major depression, obviously, socialism rose very rapidly. And the fear of the Democrats seems to be that socialism will rise. That's all for now. Please keep up the great work. I'll talk to you soon. Hi, Jay. My name is Vance. I'm from uh, Oregon. I've actually been a, a listener for a few years now. I've always enjoyed the show. I've learned just a ton more than I could even begin to explain. And I just actually finally became a member. So just thought I'd let you know that. Very proud of the work you do. But I especially love this last episode about the uh, divide in the Democratic Party, you know. I really thought it was strange in 2018 when we elected, you know, all these fresh, uncorrupted faces to the Congress. And right away, Nancy Pelosi became speaker. And that always just left a strange feeling in my stomach. You know, on one hand, we had this hope of all these new people with this fresh energy coming in, these new ideas. And on the other hand, the old guard kind of just being watchdogs to the party. And, um, you know, ever since then, it's been a nonstop battle. They've just been saying some really just nasty, untrue things, and it really doesn't take a lot of research to figure out that it's not true or misleading. And um, that's where your shows and shows like yours, they really come into play. And they, I feel like we're living in... An amazing time. We have all these young people with their eyes open. Everyone around them is kind of struggling, and they see it, and they feel it, and there's not much hope. But then we have this great resource of the Internet where we can learn so much, and um, I feel like this young generation has really embraced that, and we kind of have held each other more accountable than maybe previous generations have been more accountable to the truth, try to hold power more accountable, which is what I really think is on the horizon, you know. I just wanted to say I really, really, really appreciate the work you do. I'm glad that I was finally able to become a member, and I plan to stay a member maybe even more for a long time, as long as the show is existing. So once again, thank you. Have a nice day.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, on to the topic of the fight within the Democratic Party and where we are in this evolving movement of uh, what seems like could be a progressive takeover of the left side of you know politics in this country here here's my perspective on it so first note is i heard someone uh, you know within the last few months daniel denver the host of the dig on jacobin radio very very much on the left and i just heard him mention during a conversation is like people on the left like we should give ourselves a break just think about how you thought of the prospects of the left just like 4 years ago compared to today so so being you know, impatient or thinking things aren't going well enough now just, it, it seems ridic- if you were to tell yourself of 4 years ago what things would be like now that version of yourself would be elated and yet here we are, frustrated and impatient. But let's get into some of these details. So first of all, the two corporate parties, as V was describing, I agree with his assessment and Noam Chomsky's concerns that he's had for decades. What I would say, though, is that we may actually be in the process of watching that duopoly break down, partly due to the internet and smaller small dollar financing as, as we're seeing progressive candidates who don't take corporate money are able to get elected in ways that just wasn't possible before. And then on top of that, the movement for public financing of elections and getting money out of politics in general, all of these movements have been on the rise for a while now, and they're not letting up. So we may actually be watching that that old system crumble before our eyes. You know, we, we can hope. And then more broadly, I just want to talk about kind of where I think uh, we are in, in this transition. So I'll start by saying that politics is only a little bit about changing minds. It's mostly about inspiring action from the already converted and using the power of that action to make change. And inspiration comes from the ability to tell a good story. Only if you can craft a convincing narrative of your theory of change will you be able to inspire enough people to take action to make that change possible. So this this inside-outside debate, uh, this hit a fever pitch when Bernie Sanders didn't beat Clinton for the Democratic nomination in 2016. So the outside advocates said, Bernie or bust, vote green, abandon the Democratic Party, they're hopeless. Whereas the inside advocates said, take over the Democratic Party and force it to become more progressive. And just for the sake of this discussion, let's assume that the Green Party has the best of all possible platforms. They have the best ideas. Their policies would make the world the best place it could possibly be. So the choice seems obvious. You you would support the party with the best ideas. No-brainer, right? 
And yet that doesn't happen. The most successful Green Party presidential campaign was Ralph Nader in 2000, who received 2.7% of the vote. The next most successful was Jill Stein in 2016, who received 1.1% of the vote. And the problem isn't their policies. It's the story they have to tell. Due to structural barriers, the Green Party doesn't have a believable story. No clear-thinking person can believe that a Green Party nominee can win any major office, or even most of the minor offices. And it's not their fault. The problems are structural, and they have largely been put in place by the two major parties in order to maintain their, their power, in order to squash competition. So I don't argue against the Green Party or, or any sort of outsider advocates about how screwed up this is. It's terrible. The two-party system breeds corruption by squashing competition. I totally get it. The problem is that doesn't change the story. It doesn't change the narrative. The sad fact is that the story the Green Party has to tell is profoundly uninspiring. Aside from Ralph Nader and Jill Stein, can you even name another member of the Green Party? I know some of you can, but not many, I would bet. And if the Green Party was more inspiring, there would be representatives of it who would be famous, whose voices we would hear. But we don't. Again, for structural reasons. I get it. On the other hand, though, AOC who's against the establishment, she's against all those, or not all, but many of the structural barriers, the mainstream media, the establishment Democrats, and obviously the Republicans, all these people don't like her or what she represents. And yet, she is quickly becoming one of the most well-known names in American politics. And the reason is because she has one of the most powerful and inspiring stories. I'm not just talking about the fact that she was a bartender. Her theory of change has a clear path to victory that people can see and believe in. But that's actually the more important part. So between the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016, the Sanders and Warren campaigns of 2019-2020, and the squad in Congress giving the establishment leadership a perpetual headache, the progressive movement has done more to change the conversation in this country in just the last four years than the Green Party or the protest voters or the epochs on both their houses, both parties are the same people, have accomplished in decades cumulatively. So go on. Say that the entire system is corrupt and needs reform. Hear, here. Point out that the two major parties work together to do the bidding of corporations at the expense of the will of the people. I am right there with you. Just say all of that and also have an understanding of the levers of power and how they work so that you can help take hold of them and actually create the kinds of reform we both want to see. And, you know, you may say the Democratic Party establishment is too far in the pocket of big business and they can't be convinced to change. You may be right, but they can be beaten. AOC proved that. Those people are terrified because they see the writing on the wall. The dam is cracking and they know the water can't be held back with corporate money alone anymore. They're scrambling to save themselves and dragging their feet as much as they can, but they can't hold back this unstoppable force forever because the stakes are too high, the problems are too large, and the story 
of a progressive takeover of the Democratic Party is too inspiring to too many people. No one has seen a story like this in decades, and people are beginning to realize that things are different now, that people have more power than we were led to believe, and we're figuring out how to use it. It's a fundamentally different story than the outside strategy. People can actually see how this movement can play out, how it can take power, and how it can make the world a better place. So they get excited and they get involved. And that involvement and that action translates to power and to change. And I should just mention, side note, that if you agree with me about this whole concept of the importance of the power of having a story to tell, I talk in a lot more detail about this concept in a recent members episode that got me thinking about this subject. But instead of politics, I talk about pirates. So you're not going to want to miss that. Anyways, last note, though, uh, back to where I started. Most importantly, remember that this is a slow-moving story. Again, think about how you felt about the prospects of the left four or five years ago. And then think about where things are today and have some patience. Political time runs slowly. Movements emerge slowly. Occupy Wall Street was eight years ago. Bernie announced his candidacy more than four years ago. The squad was sworn into office nine months ago. When you take the long view, you can tell that things are happening. The problem is that nothing ever happens fast enough for progressives. We are an impatient lot because we're trying to fix all of the world's problems and there's no time to lose. But in the big scope, progress is happening. And actually at a lightning speed by political standards. And I'm not saying that you should sit back and just watch it happen. Keeping the pressure on is what pushes the story forward. But the fact that the establishment Democrats are still in power right now shouldn't be seen as a setback. It's an inevitable step in the process of one old and tired ideology being replaced by a new one for a new progressive era in a slow-motion tidal wave. And now, just real quick before I go, I wanted to let you know what today's poll options are for upcoming topics of the show. If you want to give your opinion, there's a link in the show notes. You can check it out on Patreon. No financials involved. It's open to everyone. So real quick, the list is Trump representing the U.S. on the world stage. He was just at the G7, but of course, there are lots of examples of that we could go through. Understanding the crisis and protests in Honduras, which is creating the push factor for the migration out of Honduras into the U.S. Recent voting machine problems have been popping up, and so we'll discuss that in preparations for the 2020 election. American Empire, sort of taking the broad picture, a couple of authors would be featured, authors of the books Empire of Borders and How to Hide an Empire, both very interesting topics. Mental health in the age of Trump fatigue syndrome. We've been having this discussion on the show recently, and I thought we could do a whole show about that. Joe Biden, maybe a focus on him, uh, his, his past, his present, and recent polls that are not looking terribly good for him. Planning for the impending recession. Of course, that's all anyone can talk about when they talk about economics, Trump's trade war, Trump's tax cuts for the wealthy, the boost to the economy it gave, and the inevitable fall that it's going to uh, precipitate. And then finally, the variety of ways in which the Trump administration is literally trying to redefine citizenship in order to cull the ranks of 
as many people as possible to make citizenship as hard as possible to obtain. So, of course, we can pick and choose who we get to exclude. Again, check that out on Patreon. Links in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com slash left. That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size. Again, at Patreon, that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.